Hi, this is Eric Steelberg, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. Here we are back again, second time in, in a video. row. In video Oof. format. I was hoping that our video would be universally panned by people so that we wouldn't have to do this all the time. But uh, here we are, everyone. Uh, look at my messy office. Behold. <laughs> Behold my Hollywood hotel room. So I'm in a hotel. Yeah. Anyway, so Fair Ben, uh, on the show today is Eric Steelberg, ASC. He just got done with a little show. You might have heard of it called Ahsoka for Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Just a little show, little little nothing show. Little show, just the latest in the Star Wars universe franchise. So yeah, uh, so exciting! I can't imagine what it must feel like to be on your first day of a Star Wars franchise. Pretty well, amazing we, stuff. Uh, he, you know, he was uh, very giddy and was very uh, happy to be <laughs> working on the show. And we talk a little bit about what it, it was like his experience as a fan to be coming in and uh, and doing that. So Ben. Uh, lots happened in this past week, but uh, what's our close focus for today? What do we got to, to uh, chat about? And now, close focus. Uh, our close focus uh, is kind of a correction and a continuation of last week. Uh, I was kind of talking out my butt because I had heard somebody else on another podcast talking about the Taylor Swift Eras Tour concert uh, release. Were they also and, talking out of their and, butt and you just repeated it? No, I think I just heard like, I, I mean, I listened to it, but I don't think I was, I was not fully informed. And we were on our, on our YouTube stream. Uh, I was corrected by somebody named uh, Drew Ravani, and I will read what he said. He said, uh, I would love to introduce you to Dylan Marchetti, the CEO of Variance Films and the distributor of Taylor Swift's Eris Film Event release huh. that you gushed over it's not a four wall event rather there is a tremendous amount of work on the part of an indie distributor to make it as big as it is i met dylan in 2008 at afm in his first year and have watched his team grow and grind do the man a favor give him credit rather than constructing a false narrative of taylor swift winging it she's way too smart for that and he works way too hard for this to be the story basically the truth is even more impressive than a lazy fiction and i will cop to the laziness of the fiction the fiction was purely a product of my laziness uh variance films deserves a whole lot of credit domestically 96 million dollars worth of credit and uh you were saying what what worldwide what was the worldwide 225 225 and uh, to further uh underline my complete idiocy i want to point out that i was like last week when i said oh this thing could make a hundred million dollars to me that's like a fictionally high amount for a concert movie to make of course i didn't really think that i'm talking about taylor swift so uh you know probably you know one of the top two or three uh recording artists working today and uh, so, yeah, 225 million in the first week. How much you want to bet it makes that again next week? This thing's going to make a billion dollars before it's all over. Ben, it wasn't the first week. That was the first weekend. Yeah, but 
I, and I have learned a few things this week. Mm. One is they're not running the movie during the week. It's only oh. on weekends. Mm. But also the ticket price is a little higher in, unless mm. you're in L.A., in which case it's probably about what you're used to paying. But uh, kudos to Variance Films. Kudos to AMC, AMC, the movie theater chain. Uh, and again, like this is kind of a it's a different model than we're used to. So I definitely cop to my lazy uh my lazy narrative but i would say to to drew ravani the part that i had fixed on was that it was a very unconventional way to release it and that they had taken this to a bunch this is the part that i had heard they'd taken this to a bunch of studios and the deals that they were offered by studios were not what they wanted because basically so uh so the movie comes out uh the theater uh keeps you know whatever whatever the theater's chunk of it is and then out of uh i think it's like 56 percent or something like that of of the theatrical hall goes right to variance films i'm assuming or amc or whoever is handling the money and then they split that up amongst themselves but taylor swift's taylor swift is keeping a larger chunk of that than let's say if you and i made a movie and it got released through lionsgate we wouldn't be nearly making as and it did that kind of money we'd never make the kind of money that taylor swift is making and i feel like this could be uh a new model for distribution maybe only for stuff like this but based on the success of it i would not be surprised if we don't see uh, a lot of concert movies coming out we know there's a beyonce one already on the way but i i, I sort of wonder could could bands that aren't you know the giant mega stars of the universe could the Flaming Lips, who I'm a big fan of, could they do a concert release? They're not going to release it on 8,500 screens like Taylor Swift did, but could they do it on 500 screens and and make a good haul? Maybe. I mean, I'm interested to see it because I like going to concerts, but, uh, you know, I don't always do it. And, and uh, the movie theater experience might be a great way to experience all all of these bands that, that we love. And, you know, even as we're talking about this, the Talking Heads uh, Stop Making Sense movie, which came out in the 80s was directed by jonathan demi that's has been re-released and so that's on is it the 40th anniversary re-release something like that sounds about right yeah yeah and and that's going around and obviously that's not going to make taylor swift money but anyway i i I want to say thank you drew for setting me straight and uh you weren't the only one (laughs) and also i had uh heard a bunch uh more information about it i think that i think the reporting on it had been a little bit uh lackadaisical because it's more complicated than it sounds, but again, it's it's an unconventional release that is now going to be, uh, I I would say, very copied. And this movie is going to make a billion dollars theatrically. For sure. Uh, I'm going to reach out to Dylan Marchetti as well and see if maybe he'd like to come talk to us about the realities of distribution and the realities of this distribution, because in some ways it sounds like it's it's writing a new playbook. And uh, I think that's really interesting. And maybe our, our listeners, viewers would, would like to, to hear from him as well. Can I say something about this, too? I'm always talking about the theatrical experience as a communal experience. And I feel like a lot of people are like, I got a big TV. I got a great sound system. I'd rather watch it at home. And, you know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. But I do think that if you're a Taylor Swift fan and you go see the Eras tour in the theater, in a theater packed with other fans, it will be a much better experience for you as an audience member than watching the exact same thing at home. And that's what I'm looking for out of the theatrical experience. I feel like what's interesting about this and an intuitive thing really is that this is gonna make people love being in a movie theater because they're gonna get something out of being in a movie theater that they can't get anywhere else. That's 
what I'm always on about when I'm saying the theatrical experience is a communal experience. And I feel like uh, something like, a, you know, like supposedly the theaters are lifting their bands on taking selfies and their bands on standing up in their theaters and their bands on singing during the show. Of course they are, because it's going to be sort of like being it's as close to being at the concert as you could possibly get without physically being at the concert. And I think that the communal experience is beautiful. It's why I love seeing things in the theater. And I'm happy that it's bringing people back. Amen, brother. I'm into it. All, All right. right. <laughs> hey, let's get to the interview with Eric Steelberg. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Uh, I'm joined now by cinematographer Eric Steelberg, ASC. Thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, Eric, you first came on my radar back in 2006 with a little movie called <laughs> Quinceanera. Uh, <laughs> I, I was at Sundance when Quinceanera had its uh, premiere, and I remember being blown away by the movie. It's a very, uh, you know, uh, humble indie film, but it definitely has a it has some wonderful qualities to it. Now, before we we're, we're here to talk about Ahsoka, we're going to talk about your career and, and the, the show and everything. But I want to just ask you a little bit about Quinceanera and where you were in your headspace in your life in 2006 compared to where you, where you are today. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of travel, a lot of water under the bridge. Tell me a little bit about Quinceanera. <sighs> Why are you taking me way back? That I is know. Really special, that is a really special film. It's a great um, movie. It's such a great movie. And I, I, I think it's a shame that more people haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, uh, I, at the time, I was doing uh, mostly commercials, TV commercials. And I had an agent for TV commercials. And I was also doing additional photography on independent films. I mean, no money films. Uh even shooting some very low budget films, films for, you know, under a hundred thousand dollars, if you can believe that on, you know, mini DV, but commercials was how I was, you know, making, trying to make a living. And I did one film in about 2004 and it was shot on the Sony F900, which for anybody that doesn't know was kind of the first mainstream HD camera that anybody attempted to use. It's what, you know, George Lucas made famous on shooting the prequels uh, on this camera. So after that film was finished, a friend of the directors who is an independent film producer in LA also saw the rough cut. Uh, her name was Ann Clements. And Ann was impressed enough with the movie and the fact that it was shot on HD to reach out to me and say, hey, you don't know me, introduced herself said she was going to be producing a small movie with a, a pair of directors uh, and they're planning on shooting HD. They didn't really know anything about shooting HD. They would love to talk to me about shooting HD, what my experiences was, pros and cons, and possibly send me the script. And I said, yeah, great. You know, tell me more about it. And she says, well, it's a really sweet, charming movie in LA about a, uh, a Latino family, um, some religious uh, undertones. And it's really interesting. And, um, she sent me the script. I absolutely loved it. And so I met with the directors. I loved them. We got, we got along. We talked creatively about the movie and technically about shooting HD. And they asked me to do it. I was in love with the script and uh, it was going to be a very challenging shoot. I think we shot it in 15, 17 days, something like that. And that was that. That was, that was the movie. I had a crew of, you know, 
a handful for everything. I had an AC that was kind of an AC slash operator slash, you know, I did everything myself on the camera along with my AC. I had kind of a gaffer that was a gaffer and key grip, you know, like two lights, that, that sort of thing made very inexpensively, but it was such a good story, you know? And I think the, um, creative limitations that were given to me, us by the lack of budget and the lack of you know, film and trying to embrace natural light and high definition, even on this very early version of it, really became the identity of the film. And embracing that is part of what made it stand out, not just the story and the directing and the acting, but like the way it was presented. And, you know, a lot of stuff in Sundance was not shot in HD at that time. They were still shooting 1635 because I think that back at the time, you know, independent films are always trying to compete on the stage of larger films. They want to make their films most attractive to buyers. And the idea of shooting on video <laughs> uh, and trying to get distribution, I don't think was uh, very popular or thought of to be a good idea. But that was what we had. And so we went with it. And, and I think it really impressed people. And it ended up winning the uh, Grand Jury Prize and Sundance uh, Audience Award at uh, Sundance 2006. You're, you're partially correct there. It won both the Audience Award and the Grand Jury Prize, oh, well, which, which right. doesn't usually happen. Yeah. And yeah, I was there. I, I saw it uh, at the Eccles Theater with like 3,000 people. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I was totally, totally blown away. You can buy tickets at Sundance that they don't tell you what the movie is. You're just going to go see the winner. And so mm -hmm. you, you know you're going to go see the winner. And holy crap, was that was that, was that <laughs> so much fun? And I, I did get to see it once afterwards, but it seemed like a movie that, you know, was destined for greatness and then kind of fell off the radar. But uh, since we since you and I get, we're getting to talk today, I wanted to kind of start there and I, I wanted to understand if this was a real sort of jumping off point for you, for your career to have shot the movie that won both jury prize and audience award. I've talked to other DPs who've shot, you know, one or one or the other. And it's interesting. Sometimes they say like, oh yes, absolutely. This was a, a nice stepping stone for my career. And then other people say, crickets. There was like no, nothing, or nothing <laughs> happened. So I'm, I'm wondering what it is for you uh, in 2006. Did, did you get some momentum? Did you get some wind in your sails from this or what, what, what happened? Uh, great question. And it's actually interesting. So I had a lot of conversations, a lot of meetings after it, um, largely because no HD film had done that before. So it was a little bit of a turning point at Sundance. And so a lot of people wanted to talk to me about it, but not a lot of people wanted to necessarily hire me off of it because again, I think the HD, it was a really novel thing, but I don't think beyond directors, I don't know if it was that cool or that attractive of a thing. It was more just like, oh, that's interesting. Let's just keep an eye on this. Hmm. And then of course, a lot of opinion, people wanted my opinion on it, directors um, and producers. But what it did do, so... Uh, obviously, I've got a very long relationship with Jason Reitman. And Jason, while I was filming Quinceanera, was shooting his first feature called Thank You for Smoking. So he was doing his movie. I was doing Quinceanera. He premiered at Sundance. I premiered in competition at Sundance. We did very well. Once that movie did what it did at Sundance, I suddenly had credit and a little bit of credibility and when Jason had the script to his next movie, he called me and said, hey, I'm going to send you a script from what I think is going to be my next movie. It's amazing. It's this little movie called Juno. I think it's fantastic. I think this is 
the film for us to do our first film together. And I think now that you've got that movie under your belt, I think the studio will approve you. Great. Sent it to me, read it, obviously fell in love with it. Fantastic. Um, but it was still an uphill battle trying to get the studio, Fox Searchlight, to sign off on me because I was still only, you know, I had a film, but it was still, you know, a much smaller film, right? There's always a, there's always a reason why you're not ready in somebody's eyes for it. It's either like you've never worked with that big of an actor or you haven't worked with that big of a budget or you haven't done VF. There's always a reason, right? Um, because people like to compartmentalize people with what they think their style is or what they're good at, particularly DPs. But it worked, you know, Jason, he fought for me um, and we continued the relationship we had established on short films and, and commercials with um, Juno being our first movie. And then that point is where the career really took off. So I think Quinceanera was a great stepping stone and got me in a lot of more conversations that uh, I wasn't having before. But once it led me to, to Juno, that's when things really took off. Yeah. And, and, and Juno is a, is a great movie and you've had a, a wonderful long-term relationship with the director, uh, you know, going on to other movies like Up in the Air. And if any of our listeners are not familiar with Eric Spielberg's filmography, I'm just going to real quick rattle off uh, a couple of uh, a couple of titles here. You know, uh, series like for HBO, like Eastbound and Down, other feature films like uh, Young Adult, doing uh, occasional episodes on place on things like, uh, you know, The Good Doctor and Billions. And then, of course, uh, you know, we're going to spend the next 30 minutes talking about Baywatch. No, I'm kidding. But yes, but Baywatch, <laughs> of course, the Baywatch feature film. And now most, most uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, Dolomite is my name. Dolomite is my name. God, that was such a, a fantastic movie. I enjoyed that. That was, that was actually my pick for best picture that year. I love Dolomite. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, and then you've worked for Marvel. You did, you did Hawkeye, the Hawkeye series, which mm -hmm. was also mm -hmm. quite beloved. You did yeah, three episodes on that. And now you you know, most recently, Ahsoka, Ahsoka for for Disney, you know, the latest franchise in the in the Star Wars universe. You split the series with uh, Kian Tran. Uh, uh, Q is a, a friend of the show. She's been on a few times. Tell me a little bit about moving into the Star Wars world and getting into, and you know, doing this sort of thing. What is uh, how does all of your history of working in television, working in features prepare you now for I'm assuming working on a volume. I'm assuming different uh, technology, different philosophy collaboration how does your 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 long history of work now since uh you know it goes back even before 2006 but you know i'd say really since we're talking about quinceanera and then juno to ahsoka today how how do you get there how does that journey happen well i certainly never thought that i would start at juno and end up at star wars <laughs> in this amount of time that that doesn't seem like there's there's a that's that's a path you can connect it's circuitous um, but, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, but I will say that I think my heart lies with feature films because largely that's what I grew up and fell in love with. And that's what led me here. So my love of movies was, was the, the seed and the birth of kind of everything that led me into film and cinematography. And then along the way, working in TV really taught me just how to be fast, how to deal with compromise you know, a lot of those TV shows you mentioned were all, aside from Eastbound and Down, that was a season, but everything else was the pilot. So I got to shoot the pilot for Good Doctor. I got to shoot the pilot for Billions, which is really interesting because you're similar to a feature film. You're establishing the world and the look that will presumably, hopefully, uh, be carried into the series uh, if it does well and gets picked up. And having the success with all those those pilots turn into to series is is really exciting. And I think 
there's a lot of crossover between that and the features. I think feature filmmaking these days has gotten, you know, the schedules are getting shorter, the budgets are getting tighter, and having a background in working in network TV where you just don't have time and you don't have the money. Finding the things that you can take from television production to help make your process a little more efficient in, in filmmaking was was good for me. And it, so it was a little bit of a good training ground. It's also a good place to try things, um, work with new people. And it's not like I, I've always just kind of taken what was whatever was put in front of me and what was the most interesting at the time. I think we all have ideas of whatever the ideal project we want to work on. But but the reality is, you know, if you're trying to do this as a career, you, you've got to take the best of what, what's in front of you. You know, you can't always af- afford to wait around for for your ideal project. So for me, it was always trying to find what was most interesting that I could jump on that I could that I thought I could do a good job, you know, telling a story that I could actually make a contribution to, you know, and that's what I was always looking for. Is there something that me as Eric Steelberg, whatever my style is, what can I do for this and and make it my own and and make it so that I have a little bit of a stamp on it. And that's how I would choose things. Or I've been lucky enough that those have led to more of the similar kinds of interesting projects and allowed me to try different sorts of genres and styles and th- things like that while just, you know, while being fortunate enough to keep being offered other projects that sometimes are bigger, sometimes are smaller. I mean, there's, there's a period of time where I did, you know, a handful of movies that not a lot of people saw <laughs> because, you know, this is pre-streaming and small movies don't always do well in theaters, right? But with the advent of streaming, I think some of those movies might have had a... Um, maybe a more of a broad access to an audience. So I think, you know, being able to have that stuff or that variety of experience, you know, led to some more of these interesting projects. And I think they also affected how I behave um, when I'm interviewing and, and pitching myself for, you know, the projects. And I don't even know if that's a very good answer for your question. It, it was a convoluted question. But, and so I think you did an incredible it's not, it was job. There's, there's, you know, there's a few points I want to hit on, but I think yeah. what I'm trying to convey is, you know, the journey has been kind of, like you said, a very circuitous path, but every point in that path, there's always a reason to do it. And I never had necessarily like an end goal or something that I was looking for. But the choices I was making, you know, did a really good job at leading me to, to where I've come. I think one of the, the greatest assets of a good DP is their ability to see. So many mm-hmm. people out there claim that they can be a cinematographer, they can be a director of photography, they can, they, they can work with lights. And that's true. On, on a certain level, these are, you know, there, there's a craft here that can be taught. People can, can learn to go through the motions to do all these things. But to actually be able to see to be able to see what's there and then have that ability to recognize what something should look like or could look like or would best look like. I think that's the real unsung sort of talent of top DPs. Top DPs always have the ability to see what something should be. And then uh, if they are able to with their crew and everything else, capitalize on that and create that and create, you know, spaces and worlds for that ability to, to translate to a camera, I think it's a really, Mm. it's a really huge tool and being able to have that taste and be able to to have that judgment and see light and see composition. That is something I almost feel like no matter how hard you work at that, you can, you can level up, you know, incrementally, but you have to have some sort of gift or talent there at the beginning to be able to see where it's supposed to be. 
And that's the constant thread that I see throughout your stuff is you have real perspective, you have vision, you have real, you know, the ability to see what is something is supposed to be. And then, then voila, there it is. And I think it's on perfect display in Ahsoka. Ahsoka arguably looks as good as anything that's come from the Star Wars universe. And I know you get to, you get to share credit with Q for that. Cause you know, she did a bunch of the uh-huh. shows too, uh-huh. but your, uh-huh. your shows and her shows also are in very much, you know, alignment that you guys clearly had some conversations, clearly were working together to make sure that one episode is not out of a totally different place than the other. Can you talk a little bit about that collaboration and figuring out the look for the show? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a fantastic collaboration. I think, Q and I, I think our approach to lighting and composition is very similar, even though you might execute it in slightly different ways and take slightly different paths to get there. But I never felt like we were not on the same page. Um, Like I started, I was able to start prepping the show a few months before Q, uh, Q did because she was on another film and wasn't available. So I started off prepping the show with Dave Filoni and developing the look and the feel and whatever. And I was constantly sending messages and emails with Q references, keeping her up to date with what we were, uh, where we were at in that process. There was always an agreement. We would come up with ideas. We'd bounce things off of each other. It was always like, yep, yep, yep. Great, great, great. We always made sure that if we were having conversations with Dave Filoni, that we were uh, both there to the extent possible. So we were hearing the same thing. It was really the best version, I think, of a, of a 2DP collaboration for a show that there could have been. I, I never saw anything that she was shooting and thought, hmm, maybe I need to change my approach. Maybe what I'm doing needs to change me to go a different direction. I mean, actually, you know, I will say, I think one of the biggest parts of the success in, um, in terms of our working relationship and making sure we were uh, really aligned in our approach was that we did our camera tests together. And we came up with how we wanted to test and the methodology we wanted to use in the testing and set the goals for our testing together. And I think that alone, if for no, nothing else, set us up to be on a very similar path because it was the first opportunity that we had to actually both be at a camera, both be working with the gaffer, both be playing with lights, both looking at the same monitor at the same time. Because once we start shooting, you know, we're, we're, we're apart, you know, it's just periodic check-ins or crossing each other's paths in the hallway or, or seeing each other on set. We have to go ask each other a question or something. But shooting tests together, I think, was was a, was a really smart thing that we did and something that I would do again or insist upon if I had to work with another cinematographer. I mean, I think shooting tests together is, that really, really aligns you. Like, I have I have nothing but positive things to say about that experience. Let's talk a little bit about you now that you've done the, te- you know, we're, we're talking about testing and the the look of the show. How did you decide on color palette for essentially, I, I know that production design comes into this. I know a lot of the backgrounds and stuff that's built for the volume before you ever get, get on set. But when you're talking about like colors of light and colors of how everything, is that mostly also coming back to the testing from like wardrobe testing and, and whatnot? How are you choosing like, you know, what amount of illumination that you're going to be augmenting? What amounts coming from the wall? Where does the, uh, the colors come from? I think the first sense of the lighting and the mood of the lighting comes from, at least in our case for Ahsoka, came from our work with the art department, seeing what the sets were going to look like, and a lot of the concept art that they were providing us. 
you know, Dave Filoni and the art department worked a lot on creating concept art. And if they're showing us concept art that they like, well, that's telling us a lot, you know, like I said, a lot of being a DP is, is listening, you know, but it's also just is listening and it's also looking and paying attention to what is being given you, to you. I mean, there's never a point where I say, oh, this is really neat concept art. Is this what you're thinking? Is this what you want? If you sense the enthusiasm for something and and you understand it and the mood of of what you're seeing in this concept art aligns with what I'm imagining or close to what I'm imagining when I'm reading the script and when I'm hearing the director talk about the scenes, then then that's a really important jumping off point, you know, like, oh, OK, this is this is good. Like, I really like what you're starting with because it's just another form of direction. It's just that's what direction is, is, is providing as much information as you can to then go execute it. So I would say working with the art department, working with concept art was was how we started with that. And then beyond that, it was like it's it's working with the gaffer. It's working with, uh, you know, finding the talking about the kinds of light sources. I remember a conversation uh, I had with our gaffer, Jeff Webster, and he said, what are your favorite kind of lights to use? You know, what do you like to use um, in general? Are you more LED? Are you more incandescent? I said, you know, what I am familiar with and what I'm, I like doesn't really matter because I've never done a show like this and I don't want to necessarily take anything, any habits or preferences from another show. I really want to approach this fresh and as something new. And I told him, I said, you've been working on this for so long. I'm in, in the Star Wars world. I'm more curious what you like working with and what has worked well for you in the volume and on these blue screen stages. Because I also saw it as an opportunity for me to learn what I didn't know, you know, and, and I like learning what I don't know. I like these things being new experiences. You know, I had new lenses, I had new lights, new lighting, you know, I would much rather try to describe the look I'm going after and have the gaffer offer up new lighting, new techniques of how to get there. Because I think it's interesting. And I think by doing that, I might learn some new ways of doing things that will also change and create a, a new style or a, a new look in the, in the lighting, you know, it's just some, it doesn't take very much, right. To change, change the look. So I was very much interested in seeing, you know, how that contribution from somebody else could weigh on, weigh on the look that we were going to create. And we had a lot of opportunity, as you know, watching the show to change. There's a lot of looks in the show, right? We go to a different galaxy you know, we're, we're on very different kinds of planets, very different looks. You know, we're in like a desert planet. We're in underground. We're on a very moody kind of, you know, uh, cloudy planet. You know, we're all over the place. And, and that's a hard thing to track, too. But again, all those same techniques, it was pretty consistent with how we would approach all those various scenarios. W- would you say that uh, it's a prerequisite for being on uh, a set like Ahsoka working on a, a Star Wars project that you are a fan of Star Wars. Uh, I mean, there yeah, are people I think who's... you have to be. Yeah, I think, I think you have to be. And so a prerequisite, you got to be a big fan. W- where were you in that cycle? How big of a fan and how much then research did you need to do on the other Star Wars stuff in order to feel prepared? Uh, well, the first part is you have to be a, a Star Wars fan. You don't have to be like a huge fan, but you have to like you have to enjoy what you're about to get into. Uh, there's just, there's no way around it. If, if you don't, you're not gonna, you're not gonna understand what you're doing and why certain decisions that people are making are important to the story. It might seem, I would think that the whole thing would sound pretty ridiculous if you weren't a fan of 
Right. So every, I mean, everybody I ran into from the person working in craft service to, you know, all the way up to the directors and producers, everybody liked it. Everybody had a great, and it's fun. Like it is fun. You're, you're getting to do things that feel youthful. Like it's a, there's a very kind of innocent play to the fantasy of this space opera. Right. And that's really enjoyable. And you have to be a lot willing to have to find the joy in the project. And if you don't, I, it's just going to be really difficult. Had, had you watched Rebels before? Yes. Uh, so, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I was a huge fan of yeah. Star Wars, not the biggest, but my, my history, personal history with Star Wars is that I was born into the first movie. The first movie came out a couple months after I was born. Huge fan of the original trilogy. Loved the, loved the prequels, really excited about that and all the movies since. My kids had watched the animated shows. And so I kind of had casually watched those with them years ago. So when I got hired to this, it was actually good because I was familiar with the source material for Ahsoka. And um, Dave did give me a kind of like hit list of what to watch, like the most important episodes. And and then I did, after I was hired, go back and watch that, which was fantastic. I was I was kind of, I was a little bit embarrassed because I, I didn't think, I remember at the time my kids were watching, I just didn't think much of it. I, I didn't take it that seriously as a Star Wars product. And going back, I realized how great the storytelling actually was. And I was like, now I get it. Now I know why we're here. This is a fantastic story. You know, we have a lot to like live up to and continue. And, and it made me more excited about what I was about to shoot. I actually like the fact that people have so many strong opinions about this show, good, bad, otherwise. Because for me, why I love Star Wars, I always thought it was cool because like, Star Wars was one of the first movies that I ever saw that I would find so many people having opinions on. And I liked that it every it was something that everybody made their own. Everybody, it was a different kind of story for every viewer. Like some people saw it as, you know, a bromance or a love story or an action sci-fi or, you know, this weird kind of drama comedy in space. So that's why I think you'll find so many people talking about such varied parts of the things that they like and, and, and don't like that just, I think it's fantastic. And it still means that people are watching it, you know, whether they like it or not they're I mean, they're watching it and talking about it. And I think that's really interesting. I think there's a lot of interesting themes in the story that parallel real life. And, you know, Star Wars has always had some like lessons to be told and the shooting, obviously I'm very biased but because the, the shooting of it was also a, such a great experience, I mean, the hardest thing I've ever done, I will say that, I don't think I've mentioned that, but by far still really enjoyable experience. And because it was so enjoyable, because it's so hard, there's like so much pride I have in having accomplished it and seeing the, the finished episodes and then being able to track the story through those finished episodes in a way that is also meaningful to me as just a person watching it. In addition to somebody who worked on it, there's just multiple levels of, of pride and appreciation, which is exactly what I was hoping to get from it, or one of the things I was hoping to get from it, you know, making it feel like the Star Wars that I loved as a kid. I mean, that that's that's everything. I think that's a really great place for us to leave it. Um Eric, are, do you exist on the on the interwebs anywhere? Are you on social media? If someone wants to reach out to you or, you know, connect with you or see more of your work, uh, where should they go? I do. I mean, I have a website, uh, which is ericsteelberg.com. 
Uh, I don't spend a lot of time. Uh, you're, you're in good company. It, but yeah. uh, but feel free to give it a visit. Uh, and I have Instagram and Twitter, and it's just my name. It should awesome. be pretty easy to to track me down. We'll put links in the show notes uh, for this episode over at camnoir.com. Anyone can go there and uh, pick up Eric Steelberg's uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram handles. And uh, Eric, really, that's it. Thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I really appreciated being here. I know we, we talked about a lot of things and covered a lot of ground. So hopefully it was uh, took something from it. We absolutely did. So that was Eric Steelberg. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show. It was great having you, and I can't wait to chat with you again in the future. So much fun. Awesome stuff. And now, short ends. Hey, Ben, it is our short end time of the show. It's the time when we talk about whatever our weekly obsession is. Is there some bit of media or entertainment or technology that is just you know, got, got, got you by the, uh, by the, the neck there. Is there something that by you're the you're short at? and curlies? You could say I, it. I didn't say it. You said it. I did not say it. I was not going to say that. Wow. Okay. So, so Ben, what, what, what's your short end this week? Uh, my short end is, uh, the new Adobe premiere, which, uh, Adobe just announced it. And, uh, as Adobe premiere is my editing platform of choice. And I, I have been in Adobe premiere since, Final Cut Pro crapped the bed in 2011. I switched over to Premiere, have liked it ever since. And they uh, released a new version, which uh, I, some of it is further in the distance. And that's the stuff that I think is most exciting. And a lot of it is you can download right now if you go to their public beta. They, they did some updates that are in regular old Premiere. And some of them are uh, exciting for people who use it, but not especially sexy. Like apparently they have sped up the performance of the program by like five times wow that's, that's pretty cool it's pretty yeah, cool I, I haven't downloaded the new version yet so i can't see it but the the real star of it is how adobe is starting to throw more and more ai into uh how all their edit how all their software works the big like mic drop moment that they did was they showed a still image where they had like a woman standing by a bridge and they used uh, content to wear fill to basically cut some background people out of the background. Wow. And th only then did they reveal that it was video footage <laughs> and that and that they have co coming our way in Premiere uh, several AI things. That's one of them. And you'll be able to do that natively in Premiere. Like right now you can do stuff like that in After Effects takes a little bit more work. But uh, one of the things that they showed with AI was they had this uh, dude walking towards the camera, walking like in sunlight in like light pools falling in different places. And he was wearing a white shirt with no tie. And then they used the lasso tool and went around the neck area and asked uh, Firefly, which is their AI, uh, let's see what a what this guy would look like with a tie. And it did what Firefly does. It gave like four different versions. They clicked on the one that they liked and it tracked it in to the shot with the lighting, in, mm -hmm. with proper lighting. Now, wow. like like everything else, you look at that and you go, okay, but like in my day to day, how, how useful is that stuff going to be? Or is it going to work? But I do think that things like... Um, Hey, there's some there's a bogey in that shot. I need to clean it out. Bogey, for those of you who aren't constantly on film sets, is like somebody walked by in the background. You just want them out. So you can just draw a lasso around them and it'll paint them out. And boom, wow. Bob's wow. your uncle. Like that kind of stuff is going to... I mean, right now there are ways to do it. A lot of times involving After Effects, you know, sometimes involving After Effects and Mocha. And tracking um, and... 
Yeah. Knows? yeah. Tracking, going into Photoshop, making a clean plate, bringing it back in. And the fact that you can just be like bleep blorp and it's gone. Mm. I'm, I'm guessing 20% of the time w- without it, you know, becoming a huge headache, without it creating a new headache for you. You know, it's like, well, the good news is we got rid of those bogeys. The bad news is it looks chunky and weird and artifacty in the background and it's drawing my attention. Uh, that could be the case and like all things probably v1 of this won't be the final one that we're all excited about you know uh we're uh, after effects is on rotobrush version three and finally at version three i think like oh rotobrush is uh, something you'll use a lot like i remember i had to use it on a few shots in version one and it was like oh this is clunky and slow and not as it like it gets you somewhere but not all the way you want to go and it's a lot of extra work to get there still better than like hand roto I feel like this will be like that. But what's crazy is it's going to just be in Premiere. So fire. And and also for people who are uh, annoyed by AI uh, generative art of any kind, the the cool thing about Adobe Firefly is that it's not just going out into the whole world and pulling whatever. It's using images that either Adobe legally licensed and paid for or public domain. And uh, according to Adobe, that those are the two places that they're drawing from, unlike things like Midjourney or Dolly or whatever, uh, which those things just like scrape the entire Internet and throw it all in a blender. And you can't there's no way to give proper attribution to every artist whose work went into your your stuff on those things. Uh, Firefly, I think, was designed in theory with ethics somehow, I hope, maybe involved on some level anyway. That's that. I, uh, anyone who wants to look into it, I encourage you to check it out. You know, I, I think one of the best summaries I saw was a YouTube channel called Premiere Gal. She summarized it really well and made me very excited for uh, what's to come in Adobe in the next year. So, Ilya, what is your short end this week? I'm taking a page out of your book. It's oh, no. A po- it's a podcast. Oh, cool. So, <laughs> good friend of the show, Bill Totolo, recommended to me The Lazarus Heist. I have been talking about this. I don't know if I've talked to you about it at all, but The Lazarus Heist is a fantastic podcast and it is so cinematic in its story that it makes you forget that it's all true. It is it is a true crime story that really gets into uh, as much as anyone I think ever has into the depths and details about North Korean hackers, who of course are the hackers behind the Sony hack of years ago. Uh, and, and I'm late on this podcast. This podcast came out in April of 2021. It's already had a second season. And uh, I haven't even gotten into the second season yet. I've just finished the first season. But the first season is so great. They did a live show in New York and they got a bunch of people to come in. And I think there's a book that has now uh, been published uh, because of this podcast. And it sounds to me that there has been some sort of listener involvement, like something out of like uh, like a movie or something like that, with, with a podcast being featured in a, in a in a movie or or some other situation where listeners are actually like contributing to the story. So anyway, it is fascinating and dramatic. It has wonderful audio design. There's all kinds of you know uh, you know cloak and dagger dramatic music that goes on, and uh, I'm addicted. I'm just like binging through this podcast series. Each episode runs around 40 to 45 minutes, and I don't want to give any spoilers, but if you're looking for a podcast, if you're looking for something that's fun and dramatic and real, based like all, all of it is like, you know, from the headlines and from some research all about North Korean hackers, and you wouldn't think that they have as much influence or impact on us and the world's economy. But as you start to break it down, you know, that, that country, North Korea is 
so isolated economically from the rest of the world, the way that they feed their coffers is crime, committing crime against the rest of the world, which is is kind of crazy to think about, and I hadn't even realized it, but this podcast really gets into the details, and it is fascinating. It's re- really a good listen, lots of fun. Well, it's cool, and uh, always always cool to hear from Bill Totola. Yeah, I looked it up. It's from the BBC. I'm always like, who made it? You know, like, was it Wondery? Was it Pushkin? Whatever. Nope. BBC. Yeah. Good old BBC. I'd like to point out that the BBC has never stopped doing radio production in all the years that we've been alive. Like, you know, PBS used to do them like there was a Star Wars PBS adaptation that came out. But eventually PBS phased it out. BBC never stopped. And so I am not surprised that their stuff is some of the slickest, best produced stuff out there because they have people who have been doing it their whole lives. Whereas here in America, we're like in like 2007, we're like, oh, cool. What's this podcast thing? Well, it's it's totally worth it. Go check out The Lazarus Heist. You can get it anywhere you get your podcasts, anywhere BBC is putting out their feed, which is, I think, everywhere. You can find it on Apple. You can find it on Spotify, all the usual stuff. All right. So, Ben, I think that's just about going to do it for us. Where can people track you down if they want to track you down outside of this show? Uh, please find me at benrock.com. You can find all my stuff there, my social media stuff. You can friend me on uh, all the all the things. Uh, I'm, I'm even on Blue Sky. I'm even on Threads. I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere that some people would like to be some of the time. And uh, Ilya, where can people find you? You can track me down at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. We sell all manner of camera equipment, lighting equipment, Never heard of it. Audio equipment. Yeah. Really? You know, just, yeah. yeah we, we saw all that stuff. So I thought you worked at a butcher lenses. shop. Yeah. You know, was, <laughs> that's the other job. That's the oh. other, other job. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I thought you but, worked at an, at an abattoir. A what? Abattoir. Anyway, go on. Uh, all right. So if you don't want to find me there, you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, I am one of the only Ilya Friedman's on LinkedIn and it is it's LinkedIn forward slash in forward slash Ilya Friedman. So, I'm anyway. completely confused now. Yeah, I have never, no, never I don't even, I don't know what anyone is or who you it, are. It's a series of tubes, really. It uh, is. Okay. <laughs> it's the information superhighway. It is. Hey, we should probably thank some people. Who do we have to thank for us sitting here in our respected places, separated by about nine miles, and now being able to uh, share our idiocy with the world in video? So lazy. Uh, we should thank, uh, number one, uh, Alana Cody, who's gotten us so many amazing interviews. I, I, I really just excited. I, I saw a movie today at a mm-hmm. screening. Cannot wait to do the interview. Uh, nice. I wish I could talk about it. I believe I am embargoed from talking about it, so I'm not going to bring it up right now. But holy crap, it's a movie that's coming out. You're going to be hearing a lot about it. Uh, we awesome. should thank... Uh, ben Katz, our intrepid editor, who hopefully we haven't made his life too difficult today, but uh, enjoy whatever it is that we just gave you, Ben. And uh, he's awesome. He makes us sound like not idiots every week. And last but never least, Kay's Alatrachi, who composed every scrap of music you heard on this, also likes to call me up and uh, and talk about every interview after the fact. I get to I get to do kind of a post game with him. I, I got to talk about the creator with him a couple uh, a couple oh. of days ago. I wish uh, you recorded that. I would have liked to. I, we could have shared that on the show. That well, would be it, fun. It, it would be a text thread, but no, I'm not going to do that. Um, no, anyway. no, with with his permission, of course. Of with course, yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. yeah. But, um, yes. but 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 anyway, uh, go to uh, musicbykays k a y s dot com and hire him to score your next movie. Or I'm going to just say this uh, to direct your next movie. Or mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, best of luck to Case. He's about to go to the Chicago Horror Film Festival, I think is what it's called, next mm-hmm. week. 
So, uh, uh, and, and he will be there. And also a film that I produced and edited will be there called Deadhead. So he's there with yeah. Everbliss Inn. Uh, I won't be there, but uh, if, if, if you're in Chicago at the Horror Film Festival, uh, please uh, go say hello to Kays. I'm going to stop talking about Kays now. Are those movies in competition? Well, I think they- they're both in competition as shorts. I, don't, I mean, like, are they head to head? I don't really feel like you can compare them. They're very, very different films. Okay, excellent. Well, uh, well good luck to both of you. All right. And Ilya, I think that about wraps us up. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.